Hey everyone, welcome. If you are starting to think about your med school, PA school, dental school application, getting a little bit nervous, want to capitalize on this winter break coming up, this episode is for you. Hello and welcome to the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast, the show to help all pre-health students on their journey to acceptance. Our goal is to share information our students need to succeed, connect them with resources, answer questions, and make the stressful process just a little easier. Our episodes will vary in length from a little over five minutes to around an hour in length. Tune in to our shorts on your walk between classes, and when you have more time, you can enjoy one of our longer episodes. Hi everyone, this is Kimberly Johnson. I'm your host today, and we're going to be talking a little bit about myth busting. This is the first of a series that we're going to be doing, but uh, these myths are going to be in the context of the application cycle. And we're going to go through the timing of everything, beginning, to, uh, beginning of starting to formulate what your actual application is going to look like, right up to matriculation into health professional school, and the little myths that might be being passed along amongst you and roommates and student colleagues and um, the internet, maybe, along the way. Um, And I have my colleague, John Moses Bronson, with me today. Hello. Um, Back in the pod together again. That's right. (laughs) So... It's fall semester. Yeah. Big deal. Yes. It's it's prime time for us. Absolutely. And I think a lot of students that haven't either worked with us or don't have family in this area, there's so many misconceptions. And also, if you're talking to people that haven't been through this application process for a while, things have changed. That, absolutely that. I'm just going to interject here for a second. Yeah, of course. Um, Because this is actually kind of a big deal. There is this idea of I'm behind or I'm at a disadvantage if I don't have family who is in the career track that I want to go into. So I don't have any family who's a doctor or who has gone through medical training. So I'm behind in this process. You might actually be right on track or actually ahead of the game because you don't have anyone feeding you misinformation and you know your dad who's a doctor is not going to purposefully misguide you in this process it's just that things constantly change in the application process um and it's going to be a lot different for you than it was for them so this is why we exist Mm -hmm. we want to give you the most up-to-date information possible regardless of what your family background is and we're going to try to steer you all through this as best we can it's great when family is out there to help you get some shadowing experience Mm -hmm. or sort of break down those walls doors etc for Mm -hmm. you and if you don't have that then also come talk to us because we're going to try to help you find those shadowing experiences and give you some tips for Mm -hmm. getting in the door in the first place. Yeah. So for this episode, we decided to go through what we think is sort of like an uh, in an ideal world, what a well-prepared student's preparation would look like if they're attempting to matriculate directly out of undergrad. Now, having said that, 
very few students, is this the right choice for them? So if there's a point where you're like, I don't feel like I'm ready, I'm not, I haven't done enough things, it's okay to consider a gap year, but that's not going to be the topic of this week's podcast. We are really just focusing on what does that application cycle look like and what are those common misconceptions? So... Yeah, well, the ahead. application cycle remains generally the same from year to year. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're a junior, doesn't matter if you're a senior, doesn't matter if you finished five years ago. When you start the cycle, it's the timeline is going to be relatively the same. Yeah. So let's get started. So right now we are in the fall before the application cycle. And this is when... Most students are thinking about, all right, well, I'm going to have to do this in a few months, so I'm really going to have to ramp up in the spring. And I think that's sort of the first myth that we want to bust is that you can can and should be starting to work on that application now. Our office has developed a portfolio system that allows you months to prepare for your application and to think about your background, the things that you've done, and how to best present yourself. It's not this big, huge rush to enter everything in in April or May or whenever your application service opens. You can and should feel the right to take the time to really think about these things. Yeah, we try to break things down into more manageable pieces so that when you feel like you have that deadline approaching, you've done a lot of the background work already. So let's go with the med school path to make things simple. And we can always adapt this to dental school, PA school, optometry school, so many different paths this applies to. But for the ease of sort of consistent language, let's let's go medical here. Application opens in early May. Mm-hmm. That means that you can start entering your information into the application, the primary application, in early May. We can start working on those materials, though, and should start working on those materials in the fall semester. And that means going into the portfolio, drafting out your work and activities. Yeah. That means doing sort of a big brain download on <laughs> what's going to go into that personal statement yeah. eventually. Um, maybe it's having a quick meeting with a couple of people who you hope will write your letters of recommendation so that they have a little bit of a heads up and they can start planning ahead. Yeah. Especially here at Penn State, we have professors who are teaching hundreds of students can you imagine what letter writing season is like for them yeah it's madness yeah when I think I hear a lot of students talking about how they want to sort of time their letter of recommendation request for right around the time that the application opens it's way too late now is actually a great time to start getting that ask in to professors and faculty especially because again at, here at Penn State the volume's pretty incredible. We see faculty writing upwards of 60 to 80 letters in a single cycle and that's a lot of work for them. You know, we have another episode that we're working on talking about great ways to partner and work with those faculty about how to make the process of them writing you a letter a lot easier because you have to remember that's a lot of people for them to keep separate and if you don't have a super intense relationship with them it can result in a really milk toast letter and you don't want that so john let's go through for all the people who are trying to wrap their minds around what an application actually looks like Mm -hmm. 
let's break down the different components of an application and the different um, big sort of check-in points along the way. So we already established that you can start working on these materials on your own well in advance of the application Mm -hmm. actually opening. But what do we mean when we say the application? Yeah. Right? We mean the primary application yes. to start. Yes. There's so many different parts and pieces. So let's like break it all down. You can start working on sort of like these big pieces now, right? The personal statement is a huge part of your application. It's also the part that you have the most control of. And you'll see a series of podcasts from our show addressing how to approach that topic. Well, you'll see podcasts from us that actually touch on each part of the application in further detail. Today, we're just going to sort of break things down so you understand where each of these pieces fits in logistically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right now is a great time to be really putting in some some good human hours on that personal statement. And it doesn't need to be some big finalized draft. We are here to help you figure this beast out. So it's okay if it's like... Not in its like final Pokemon evolution form. <laughs> this doesn't your personal statement doesn't need to be a Charizard yet. It really can just be the original one. I don't. You're. This is out of my league, but I'm <laughs> it's following. A out of my I'm following. Charmander. That's the cute go. little orange one. Yeah. So in the primary application, we've got our personal statement, which is where a lot of us feel like we have more control. Yeah. Um, we have our biographical information, which is something that's sort of set in stone. Yeah. So there's not a whole lot of extra thought that has to go in there. Mm-hmm. Though it can be helpful to write out details like addresses, parents' full names, mm-hmm. dates of birth, um, you know, school information, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, other elements. Yeah. One of the biggest, I think, myths of this section, one of the things that they do ask you for is they ask a few questions about your background. And one of them is about if you have any legal actions Mm. engagement right so like i think they felony is one of them which is pretty extreme and then like a misdemeanors and a lot of students think well if i have something here i'm out it's not going to happen for me and it's not really the case but there's a huge big old caveat on that what happened really needs to have been a moment of growth and development for you and you have to be able to articulate that really really well this is a great thing to work with us on because i think sometimes students either go so far in the apology route or so far in the dismissal route that they're missing sort of this beautiful in-between space of where like sure i regret my actions but in the end it's made me a better more qualified well-prepared person for this Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think we can spend a lot of time on that, um, mm-hmm. both in, adv- in an advising session, but also sort of thinking through all of this in maybe another short episode. Yeah. Could be a great one. Yeah. So in your primary application, you're also listing out all of your academics, the classes that you've taken mm-hmm. here at Penn State. Um, if you took a summer class somewhere else, if you had dual enrollment in high school, all of that is going to go here along with the associated transcripts. Mm-hmm. This brings up the course classification guide. Mm, my favorite. Fun stuff. Yeah. You are going to have to classify every course that you took and what sort of subject it falls under Mm -hmm. there is a guide out there for all of the different application services to help walk you through that Mm -hmm. also they're not 
looking to catch you out in some sort of big mistake or lie here. They're trying to better understand your education and your background. If you miscategorize something, they're just going to give you a quick call for get some clarification so they understand exactly what that course was all about, and then they might make that correction for you. It's not going to be something that suddenly disqualifies you from the application cycle. Yeah, and a big myth at Penn State is that everything fits really cleanly in that science versus all other GPA category. Penn State's a huge institution, and because of that, there's a lot of nuance in a lot of our majors and programs. And so sometimes something on paper may not look the way that it should. A science class might actually not have enough science content for it to realistically be categorized as science. And there's a lot of courses, especially in nutrition, my goodness, Mm -hmm. that have really heavy science content and should realistically, if they were offered anywhere else, they'd be a biology class or a biochemistry class. But because we're so big, it's offered through nutrition. But that doesn't degrade its scientific rigor and value. And it should then, therefore, contribute to that. So there's some nuance here. And that's, again, it's something that we can help you with. Right. So what you're saying is a smaller school might not have a nutrition department. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's going to be housed under a larger department Mm -hmm. like biology or chemistry, for example. Yeah. Actually, I went to undergrad at a smaller school and there was only one nutrition class at the entire institution and it was a biology class. And that's what I took for my natural science requirement. There you go. That was that was the only science class I had to take. <laughs> I was very blessed in undergrad. I mean, I'm, yeah, that might be more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so um, next part of this primary application is um, the big old MCAT for medical school. Yeah. So your admissions exam, your standardized testing. Um Now, here's a tricky one. We have our primary application, rolling Mm -hmm. admission. We try to get that primary application submitted as soon as we can. The MCAT score goes into your primary application. Mm -hmm. So I guess the MCAT score needs to be ready to go when you submit your primary application. Oh, that's a myth. Oh. It's a big one. It's a big myth. Tell me more. Yeah, so... You, A, I think a lot of students, I think there's a couple sort of like conflicting and competing myths here. One is students want to take the MCAT as soon as possible so that if they don't do well, they can just take it again. Easy peasy. It's just a seven and a half hour exam. <laughs> You're right. But if you are not ready, do not take that test. You should only take it when you feel ready because if you really underperform on that first test, you can dig yourself a hole that you cannot get out of. Because what's important to note is that different schools use the MCAT differently in the evaluation process. Some will use your most recent score. Some will use an average of all of your scores. I don't think any school that I know of super scores. So it's pretty much like a, a most recent or an averaging of all of your tests. So if you score a 480 on that first attempt, which is very low, and then you come back and you score a 520, which very unrealistic, (laughs) (laughs) if school that averages it, you're really still looking at a 500, which is kind of significantly below average for MD institutions should be okay for DO, depending on the school that you're applying to. Okay, not 
Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you sort of defeat the purpose of your potential by not really taking into account that, like, taking that test before you're ready is a terrible idea. So this speaks to maturity of decision making. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I'm really looking for a future physician who is starting to make these mature decisions, mm-hmm. weigh the pros and cons, um, educate themselves about the process, and then also temper their own urges with all of that knowledge and not jump the gun. Yeah, it it speaks to this sort of like undercurrent of naivete. And they look for that in other parts of your application. And you don't want to provide them a red flag in something that should just be like, a oh, this is a pretty good score. This fits the caliber of student that we're looking for. And the best way to decide if you're ready to take the MCAT is the AAMC practice test. Those are most reflective of what your actual score is going to be. So in those weeks leading up to your planned test date, Mm -hmm. have reserved a couple of those MCAT prep um, tests from the AAMC specifically. So not from Kaplan, not from Princeton Review or Altius or any of these other companies. AAMC specific practice tests Mm -hmm. so that you can see, am I falling in within a couple of points of what I want my score to be? If not, we need to hop on there and reschedule. Yeah. It's, it's, schools won't see that you've rescheduled. They'll only see the date that you actually took the exam. Now, let's say that perhaps we got pressured in taking the MCAT ahead of time. There's a huge myth that like, if I take that test, that's the score that I get. If you know you didn't do well, void your score. I know that's like emotionally terrifying that you've effectively like taken seven and a half hours to just void your score. But if you know you didn't do well in your heart and soul, voiding that test and taking it off your record is so much better than being like, well, I'll just see what I got because you don't have forever to void that score. You have – there's a ticking Split time clock. There. I think it's like, what, five minutes you have to decide? It is very short. It's I don't even know if it's five minutes. You have to trust your gut in this process so often. And this is one of those points where the maturity of decision-making of I know this doesn't reflect my ability and I need to void this and I'll retake it again later is going to serve you way better than, well, I'll just see what I did. Mm-hmm especially if you are feeling really not confident because I'll tell you students who feel like they did pretty good will sometimes outperform how they think they did a student that says I don't think that went well it never goes well nope so let's circle back around to the primary application timing of your MCAT you can actually submit your primary application Mm -hmm. without your MCAT score The reason for this is that the AAMC is the organization that puts out the application. It also puts out the MCAT. So your primary application, before it gets sent to any schools, Mm -hmm. actually goes directly to the AAMC for a process called verification. Because the MCAT is put out through the same organization, it's already verified. It's already vetted, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so... Your MCAT score doesn't really need to be in when your primary application goes to be verified. It can join up with it later on in the process. What you're looking for in the end is a completed application 
as early in the process as possible. So that means you got that primary in mm -hmm. nice and early. It went through the verification process, which can sometimes last several weeks. No applications go to the schools until the the last Friday in June. Yeah. Once that happens schools will begin to send out secondary applications, which are generally essays. Those go through email, mm -hmm. not through the AAMC. Mm -hmm. And you will send those back directly to the schools. Once your primary is in, your secondary essays are in, then you need to just make sure that your letters of recommendation are present mm -hmm. and your MCAT score is present. That constitutes a complete application, and that's the point at which they usually start to do more in-depth reviews and consider you for a potential interview. Yeah. There's a lot of myths around timing, right? So we address this one of sort of the standardized test, and it's the same in ACOMIS and, and uh, ADEA ADSAS. So a lot of these services, they, they don't expect that score to be in when you apply. And statistically, we know that the students with the most success apply apply early. You can actually get have more success with lower metrics if you apply earlier on. So there is a huge benefit to applying early. The other sort of myth at this point in the process is that your letters of recommendation have to be in right at the beginning. Your letters of recommendation are not part of the verification process. So schools sort of like evaluate those letters on their own. So you know, if you submit at 12.01 on the very first day that that application is open, you don't need to then be terrified that your letters of recommendation from if you're doing the letter set through Penn State for certain health professions, other health professions do not do that. But it, we don't need to then send it in the very next day. You really have quite a while because that upload is instantaneous. So there's not going to be anybody like busting down your email trying to get your letters for quite a while, right? So you don't need to be freaking out. We have time. We're pretty quick in our turnaround with those letter sets, um, but it's nothing for you to panic over. So during the week, our turnaround, I would say, is around is under 24 hours unless yeah. there's some issue that we've encountered maybe a letter that we found of yours that's not on letterhead so we need to track down the mm -hmm. writer and, and get that updated for you something like that but usually during the week it's under 24 hours uh, and... I, I mean our admin is so fast there was a time oh, yeah. where i sent something to her and within half an hour she let me know that the done. letter set was uploaded Handled. it was done it's amazing <laughs> yeah so sometimes it's very very quick Again, it sort of depends on how ready and prepared your letter set is. And we try and do as much work as we can ahead of time uh, to help sort of mitigate those pauses and stalls in the process. Um, but this, it's a good thing for you to sort of be on top of with your letter writers. But again, we're going to talk about working with your letter writers in another episode. We're going to... We're going to stick to the juice. So let's go into a little more detail about what secondaries are and what our turnaround <laughs> needs to be there. Sure. Yeah. So the the primary application is standard. Everybody submits the same things for every single institution. The secondaries are special in that they are personalized to the different institutions. Now, there are some common essays that are relatively common. However, one of the biggest myths is, well, I'm going to pre-write stuff based on what I find on the internets. 
And that can really cause you some problems because a lot of schools will slightly change wording if they found that a lot of their applicants had like misinterpreted what they said. They'll clean up wording on their essays and it can can change the perceived meaning of those essays. And so by pre-writing, you actually sort of like write yourself into a corner because once you've dedicated something to paper – a lot of my students have a very hard time letting any of it go. Oh, yeah. And so I have to do a lot of, like, you have missed the intention of this essay. You need to start from scratch. That's a lot of that because if you misinterpret what they're asking for, they're going to assume you can't follow instructions, and that's not good. Great. <laughs> they're not going to have a high opinion of you. Well, pre-writing also leads to some stale feeling essays. If yeah. you are taking some of these big ideas that you generally find in secondary essays and reusing things over and over again for these different schools that you're getting essays from, they're going to notice. It's going to mm -hmm. feel stale. You really have to you don't need a completely brand new, fresh approach, but you really need to write it specifically for that school and their program. So if you're trying to prepare for your secondaries, mm -hmm. which you absolutely should, because yes. when you suddenly get an email inbox full of schools requesting essays from you and the recommended turnaround is two to three weeks, you are going to be writing as your full-time job. So... My recommendation is to have a running document for yourself with the schools that you've applied to mm -hmm. and start taking notes and including links for yourself. Mm -hmm. What do I love about this school? What student organizations do I think that I want to be a part of? What part of their curriculum really speaks to me and the type of practitioner that I hope to be in the future? Yeah. Uh, what popular labs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what population do they serve? Do I identify with that population mm -hmm. in any way? Um, are there lectures recorded? Is there a virtual option? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I like to be able to go back and re-listen to things and compare my notes or whatever it is that you do. What's your process? And is there educational style going to match your process of learning yeah and don't There's just a, oh, well sorry. i just one thing that i really 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 suggest is don't just take notes add in the links because mm -hmm. when you find something useful you don't want to spend 30 minutes going to hunt down that part of the website <laughs> again or yeah. um look in unusual places look on youtube look on instagram because people are posting what their organizations are doing or creating class skits even yeah. that are going to give you a good sense of like what the vibe is there that stuff doesn't go onto their website necessarily that's going to be found in the these other venues yeah for me one of the biggest myths that i see here is that sort of all med schools are created equal mm. every med school is great yep I've been part of the accreditation process for a medical school. Mm -hmm. Those standards are rigorous. Let me tell you, I still have nightmares about that because it is <laughs> hard work to keep all of that functioning and documented exactly as they want it to be so that they can ensure quality amongst every single school. Yeah. So you know, I agree. Every medical school is good, but they are not all created equal for each individual student. There are medical schools with completely different approaches to education. They're all hitting these same outcomes, but their process to get there is really different. For students that sort of love to have as much knowledge 
at their feet before they do anything applied as possible, you want to look for a more traditionally styled educational curriculum where you have a really heavy first two years of education and then the second two years are your more clerkship and practice-based education. There are other students who are like, I need to have that hands-on application. I need to have that interaction with patients. And if you're not seeing them for two years, you endanger, girl. It's mm. not a good fit for you. And you need to know that walking into it, right? So let's say you are you're one of those people that needs that interaction and you are applying to one of those schools that has that more didactic two-year, two-year setup. You need to be identifying things that you can do outside of the classroom that is getting you that patient experience. Let's say they run a, a they have a student run free clinic. You need to identify, yes, I'm a hands-on person. So although there's nothing built into the curriculum, I plan on volunteering with this free clinic because I want to get that patient interaction right away. This is student run and I can really get that. Absolutely. I think that's a great suggestion. And you all know that you're different from your roommate who's applying or your friend who's applying or whoever it is that you're talking to. You know that you don't need the same thing that the next person needs. So really think about how you want to live this next stage of your life. Yeah. You have some choice here. Yeah. You're deciding where you want to apply and... Um, it really behooves you, your future success, your future happiness mm -hmm. to find the absolute best fit. Yeah. You'll find writing secondaries that certain schools feel easier to write than others. So true. When you find those schools, what you have identified is a synergy between yourself and that institution. If you find secondaries particularly easy to write for a school, that is a school that you want to pay a lot of attention to because something in what they're asking you to do or the institution has clicked for you. So, you know, just because something is on paper sounds the best, sometimes that vibe check is just so, 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 so important. Were you thinking about the same student that gave us the word vibe check for this part of the application? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, love, I love them. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I think we want to move on to the fall yeah. winter period of your application cycle. Yeah. So, so there's a lot going on, surprisingly. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> you've submitted all those materials, right, which is a huge accomplishment. You should feel very proud of yourself. You also need to give yourself some time to breathe. Absolutely. So you don't really want your secondary essay writing period to drag on forever. It's not something that you need to, like, not sleep for three weeks and just like slam through it that's a terrible idea that's sort of another myth to bust is that if it's not in within two weeks it doesn't mean that you're a bad applicant they understand that students have a lot that are applicants have a lot that are being asked of them so you cannot hold yourself to that impossibly high standard for everything they don't want sloppy writing no they want thoughtful responses well written yes yeah that are personalized to them mm -hmm. and, and indicates to them this student truly wants to come to my institution and has done the work to tell me that yeah. they also kind of know too that if you're sending it in really really late mm -hmm. that maybe you weren't feeling quite as inspired to write that one mm -hmm. and maybe that's a sign to them that you're yeah. less of a good fit than maybe you thought initially 
And that's good for all parties to know. Yeah. You know, in economics, there's this concept of sort of this law of diminishing return, which is at a certain point, the work that you're putting in is not going to give you as much value anymore. And you sort of need to understand when you've hit that point. A big myth, just because you've been sent a secondary essay request does not mean that you need to submit a reply. This is a great way to passively withdraw from a school to say, like, I I don't feel the connection with this institution that I thought I did when I initially applied, and I cannot devote my time and energy to this because it does not feel right. Now, ideally, this will happen before you have hit submit to apply there. (laughs) But in the event that it doesn't, that's okay. It is. All right. So we've sort of hit the end of like the primary and secondary we're sort of moving into that fall period when if you're our junior moving into your senior year you're coming back for your senior year right so starting in late august early september we'll start to see some interview offers roll in for students who are considered exceptional fits for particular institutions these interviews are i would say on the rarer side because schools are incredibly picky at this point in their process. They're looking for students who are, on paper, exceptional fits for their institution and really fit specific types that they're trying to fill in their their school. These are like the easy yeses mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. And being an easy yes isn't necessarily an indication that you're any better of a student or an applicant at all. Mm-hmm. It's that you're a really particularly good fit for the type of cohort that they're looking to form that year. Yeah. Just because you're the last person accepted to a class doesn't make you less mm-hmm. of an applicant or a future student in any way at all. Yeah. These Most of these medical schools could fill their class with ideal applicants multiple times over within the same year because of the volume of applications that they get. But there's easy yeses. And then there's a little more of a negotiation because um, one person sort of really kind of identifies with what you've put in your application. um, And so they're going to start really advocating for you. Or maybe you round out this particular cohort in a Mm -hmm. way that they're really looking for as they move forward and continue to define their school and mm-hmm. um, and care for the populations around them in their neighborhood. Yeah, and a lot of schools will fill their sort of special populations first. So like at Jefferson, they have the Physicians Shortage Area Program or PSAP as it's commonly called. And so they're really prioritizing those more rural applicants who are looking to serve in medically underserved areas. So not getting an early invitation at certain schools that have those sort of special programs isn't an indicator that you're not a good fit. It just might mean that they're prioritizing different applications at that part of their cycle, right? Because you have a cycle, but they have their own cycle that is operating independently of what you've got going on. Absolutely. You know, maybe they have to focus on something early on because one of their interviewers is going to be out for Mm -hmm. three weeks at the end of that fall semester. Yeah. 
Uh, so they've got to sort of front load things. Or maybe they only have time for their committee to meet twice a month. And so they're sort of focusing their efforts along that timeline. Yeah. So there's definitely a cycle that's going on at each individual school. Yeah. So if you're not part of that early group of interviews, another myth. That does not mean that you're not going to get really good interviews, and it doesn't mean that you're not a good applicant. It just means that where you're fitting in these school cycles is different than your expectations. So, John, I have a question. Yeah. Um, say I've gotten a few little nibbles. I'm cruising kind of cruising along. We get to December mm-hmm. and I've just been really, really, really busy keeping up with like some new research stuff that I've been doing, mm-hmm. volunteering at this organization. That's really important to me. Um, and I want to get a little more traction in the cycle because I feel like I've got a lot of things going on that yeah. is valuable to that application that I've already submitted. What yeah. can I do? So this is an interesting conversation because there's many things that you can do depending on your individual station in the cycle. But let's say for the sake of argument that you're not getting sort of the interest expressed about you from a school, right? You haven't got that interview offer. Something that you can choose to do is call an update letter. And these are relatively common, but I say this with a huge caveat. You need to know what the individual schools that you're applying to's rules are about update letters. Schools have wildly different perspectives and allowances for this. So, you know, for example, some schools say, hey, you have two additional letters that you can provide. That's great. Some schools are, hey, as soon as you turn in that primary application, if there's anything you couldn't include there, start sending us update letters. That's fine. There are other schools that say, no, we don't accept update letters at all. So understanding what the sort of framework that you're working within for each individual institution is really important, right? So Penn State College of Medicine, they don't accept update letters at all. So that's not something that you can do for them, Right, But there are other institutions, Drexel, for example, they limit the number of letters that you can submit to two. So they would be a great one to submit an update letter for. You don't want to burn both of your spots on an update letter for a school like that. Because let's say that first update letter turns into a good result for you and you get that interview, but you get waitlisted there. You're going to want to submit a different kind of Mm -hmm. letter. Do you want to talk about that one? Should we talk about letters of intent? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So a letter of intent basically says I could get an offer from every other school that I applied to swimming in offers. Yes. But you are the only school that I want to go to, the only offer that I will actually end up accepting. You are my very first choice above all others. Yes. That right there is basically an informal commitment. Yeah. When you set send a letter of intent that's you saying, you give me that offer and you will have that seat filled. Yes. I will commit to you immediately. I'm sending that deposit in. Mm-hmm. This is a done deal. I am all in. Yeah. It's a very powerful letter as schools try to manage their wait lists. It is 
it is something that you have to be very sure of. Absolutely. When you submit it. Mm -hmm. You have to know that this is the school. And that is challenging, especially depending on the time of year. Letters of intent are pretty rare in the fall. I don't think I've ever encouraged a student to send one in the fall. I see them more common. I encourage them more commonly around February or March. As I say the same thing. Yep. And uh, you have to be really on target with that Mm -hmm. because it's not going to be a good look if you're setting a letter of intent to a school where you're not going to be a good fit. They're Mm going to see that and think okay, this person really doesn't have a good sense of who we are as an institution. And that's not going to result in an offer. No. Now, there's this third category, which is incredibly rare. And I don't think I've actually helped a student do one in this past cycle, which is a letter of continued interest. Mm. So this is is sort of – it's the in-between of that – wait list and sort of the no response is you know if you've if your application's been put on hold or if after the interview your decision is hold as opposed to wait list a letter of continued interest is just letting them know like hey if you're still interested in me wink wink i'm still interested in you and those letters are very carefully crafted whereas update letters can be they can err more in the side of a bit more generic but every one of these parts of the process need to be carefully tailored to each individual school, right? So you can include all of the same elements in your update letter, but they all need to be applied differently depending on the institution that you're submitting it to. And why you're submitting it to that institution. Exactly. It, and you can't just say, like, I know research is important to you. That's not enough, sister girl. It needs to say, I'm doing this sort of research. I feel like this is giving me the skills necessary to be able to participate in this specific research lab at your institution that I find very interesting and engaging. I would love to come to your school and develop a mentor-mentee relationship with this particular individual. Yeah. I have a student who is really interested in taking medicine into the streets and meeting people right where they're at, especially people who uh, are... in indigent populations of homeless or um, battle substance use disorder and so is really passionate about this concept of street medicine and had an interview at Pitt and got waitlisted and we talked about the person who developed that concept and started to like develop the sort of like foundational research and information on it is a faculty member at Pitt's College of Medicine. (laughs) And so they framed a lot of their letter talking about their work, referencing articles that they had read and had applied to their work, working with substance use disorder patients on the streets of the city that they live in. So there's a lot of power here. And a huge myth is that just submitting it is good. You have to submit, again, this is a caveat one, you have to submit it with a lot of intention and a lot of preparation. And this is something I love helping students figure these things out, but especially students that have taken the right steps ahead of time. It's sometimes very hard for me to take a generic letter and help them figure out how to take it to the next step because it makes me worry that they don't see how it connects. We don't want to do that for you. 
We don't want to take on the responsibility of you ending up at a school that's not a good fit or not getting what you need educationally when it comes to medical school. That's a huge deal. We need you to be certain that mm-hmm. you know what you want. And if you don't know what the if you don't know what you want, mm-hmm. then we need to press pause. Yeah. And absolutely press pause. Oh yeah. Because it is so touching on my background in the past. I worked at a medical school in the past and it is very very normal to have applicants who are coming from a very different part of their life so not directly from undergrad they have taken the time to really get to know themselves to know what motivates them to know what their goals are to live life a little bit and they're going to be able to express that Mm -hmm. very clearly in their application whatever part of that application is if you can't do that yet, if you have any doubts, and those doubts will show through in your application, mm-hmm. then you have to press pause mm-hmm. because you're not ready to compete with those people who are 27, 28, 29, who have gone through this whole big process of understanding exactly why they're taking this next step. Yeah, there's a reason why we've seen this huge increase in the number of students who actually matriculate having taken at least one gap year. The average age of a first-year medical student has grown consistently, and I don't think that that trend is going to change. You know, in talking with someone from the University Park campus of Penn State College of Medicine about that trend that we're noticing, he's like, well, of course, those students come into our classrooms so much better prepared to talk about the realities of the healthcare system and how... They have personally been touched by it and the work that they've done to address it in other ways in their lives. They have all these this richness of experience to bring with them. So it's... If you haven't called to make your own doctor's appointment yet in life, mm-hmm. then maybe it's not <laughs> quite time to apply to medical school yet. Yeah. There certainly are students that are super ready right away. And that's totally. great. And But they come with so much confidence that I don't doubt them when they say that they're ready. Exactly. There is definitely a different feel with those applicants who truly are ready. And we see them every year. They're just like, yeah, you're totally ready. And it comes through in how they write about themselves. They still, I think, run up on some some myths here and there in the process. Of course, yeah. Um, But I think everybody does. And I don't think um, having misunderstandings around these myths speaks to the quality of your candidacy. Oh, no. It's just a really complicated process and it takes time and a lot of guidance often to understand. Yeah, the challenge here is that there's a lot of um, sort of like logical fallacies at play of like, this worked for me, therefore it will work for everyone. (laughs) There's this deep dangerous part of the interwebs that I shall shall not name names of where people take their personal experiences and present them as facts which I think we see at a lot of places but it's very dangerous in this process there's no one size fits all here no admissions you know I have a lot of students that say you know my ex and ex my so and so is a professor a physician and they said if you get this if you do have a good GPA and a good MCAT score, you're golden. It's just not the case anymore. And I think that this conversation has really helped to illustrate that well because, you know, there's all of these moving parts in this application. 
and there's so many opportunities for for applicants to make unknowing mistakes and it's why we don't stop serving students just because they've graduated this process is so complicated that to leave alumni even though they do know themselves so much better we're fi- we would fail our, stu- our, our, our students, our alums, if we didn't continue to serve them because there's so many things that can go awry in this process. And we don't want to set the expectation that you should be ready to apply spring, summer of your junior year. Yeah, it's unfair. It's very unfair. And it's not the case for a lot of people. And honestly, we don't want it to be the case for a lot of you because we want you to apply when you're ready. And we will be here for you when Mm -hmm. you're ready. All right. So we've talked about sort of all these things that you can do along the way. One of the other myths that I've heard more so recently is if you have multiple acceptances, you can only hold one offer at a time. And depending on the type of time of year that is that is a myth you can hold multiple acceptances at one time however in the spring you really gotta like make some decisions there and that's so that other people have the opportunity to get acceptances as well exactly every spot that you're holding at a place that you ultimately don't go to is a spot that is not going to somebody else sooner so the anxiety that you feel not getting that offer from your fifth institution that's your top choice that is for other people who are experiencing that same stress and anxiety and maybe they don't have any other offers exactly and this is going to be their one offer and they are just waiting and hoping mm-hmm. that this is going to work out for them and that's hard yeah i had a student that didn't get a single offer until late may yes. of last year and they we're already started on a new process and so they're like i don't even know how to manage this and they have to pivot so quickly i mean i had a student once who had just renewed their contract at their job signed Mm -hmm. a new lease for the next year in their apartment Mm -hmm. and they actually had to turn down their offer because they were going to experience such financial hardship to back out of all of these other things that they had just committed to yeah That was so agonizing for them. Yeah, it's really tough. That financial hit was going to be greater than going through another application cycle for them. Yeah. So I guess another myth here is that, like, just because you receive an offer doesn't mean you have to accept it. It's heartbreaking, and we will do everything in our power to help coach you through for that not to happen. But there are circumstances where that's the case. And just because you've turned down an offer doesn't mean that you'll never receive another one, right? Because that applicant now has a full entire year additionally of things that they can bring to a cohort. We should clarify that this isn't the norm and Mm -hmm. you shouldn't – there should be really – clear circumstances mm-hmm. why you're turning down an only offer very and you, extreme you will have to address that in a future cycle yeah so you have to really really understand your reasoning for that and be certain in it mm-hmm. and have discussed it with somebody else and even discussed it with the admissions office of the school that you're turning down just so that everybody's on the same page yeah. and it's not just you sort of ghosting them for yeah. lack of a better this is not something to do willy-nilly no really it isn't <laughs> 
So worst case scenario, we've gone through the entire cycle and unfortunately we don't get an offer. Exactly. What do we do? Do we just open up a new primary application in May and just just do it all over again? It's not it's not, not always that, the best choice. It's not that cut and dry, right? No. You know, we need to understand why we didn't get an offer. Yeah. Until we understand why we didn't get an offer, we can't really determine how to approach another application cycle. Yeah. Is it reasonable to hit the ground running in the next application cycle? Or is the, there some work to be done before mm-hmm. you can expect to have a successful cycle? I think that there's really two camps here of applicants and how I would direct them kind of depends on this. Did you receive interview offers? Were you waitlisted places? Mm -hmm. That tells me that like you had a really solid application. You just didn't rise to the top of that particular cycle and that you're you really are a good fit. They just didn't have space for you this year. And that could be something as simple as rewriting your work and activity section or your personal statement Mm -hmm. to, you know, strike that exact note that you need to strike. Yeah. So it's it's a refinement process at mm-hmm. that point because it, it's clear that schools saw your diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. The students that I don't suggest moving directly into an application cycle are students who have had no results at all, no interviews, nothing like that. It's an indicator that there is something amiss somewhere. There, something isn't, something's not something inging. And and schools are really, really working hard to turn out the best physicians that they can, the best PAs that they can, the best dentists that they can. And so they don't want there to be just these quick, easy fixes. They want you to be reflective. They want you to take the time to do this right. And rushing through it is another sort of maturity of decision-making thing for them. We don't want to raise any of those flags because those are easy flags not to raise. Yeah. Because one of the things that I struggle with is is around this is that students will then just turn in the same application again. Or they think, let me just go volunteer at this place for the next couple of months Mm -hmm. and then it's fixed. Yeah, no. No. No, it's, it's, it's bigger changes than that. If you were just missing a couple hours of something, that's not going to stop you from getting an interview. There is a more core issue at play here. And you need time to ascertain what that is and then to develop the skills and background around it. And then you've got to be able to articulate your understanding of it and reflect and... Um, put all of that on paper in a way that they can see the depth of your understanding and your pre- preparation that you've you've taken since that past application cycle. Yeah. So there's not uh, – I think the big thing here is that there's no shortcuts to be taken no. in this process. Not anywhere along the way. No. Because, you know, as a reapplicant, it is difficult. Because if you apply to the same school twice, if they're like, oh, I think I think the student applied here last year, let's pull out their application from last year. If oh. it's identical, <laughs> oh, Great. you're in danger mm-hmm. it, because it shows a lack of effort, a lack of intention, a lack of self-awareness. 
a lack of capacity for growth, mm. which is one of the most important competencies yeah. that they're looking for, is how do you grow from challenge? What is your distance traveled? This is showing me that you've stopped traveling. This is not a career where you can stop growing. No. My goodness. So in, in my class, my first year seminar, we are, we've are we been discussing the book, Every Patient Tells a Story. Love that book. It's so good. My students have really enjoyed it this semester in particular. But one of the facts in the digital diagnosis chapter, which I think is chapter 10, they talk about how in 1976, they identified that physicians at the time had two million different medical facts that they had to be able to recall at any one time which is just an obscene amount of information. They estimated that today's physicians have five times that amount that they're expected to recall. Mind-boggling. It's wild to think about. So they are looking for people who are able to respond and grow and develop and currently constantly take on more and more and more because that's the expectation that we have, unfortunately, in this day and age with the amount of information that we have available to us. I mean, if you think of how we, just how we would have treated a diabetes patient in 1976 to today, that's, you know, hundreds of new medical facts just about this one thing. And that's everywhere. And that's not going to change. Research is coming out all the time. We are very lucky that we live in this interconnected society because the amount of information that we can take on and grow from and utilize and synthesize into our overall knowledge is growing exponentially as well. But if you demonstrate that you're stopping in this process and then you're not continuing to grow and develop, you are not mirroring the type of physician that they're looking to develop. And you're not communicating the type of physician that I'm sure most people want to be. You know, we talk a lot about you being able to articulate who it is that you want to become. Yes. And all of these things that you do tell that story. And the things that you don't do also tell your story, too. Beautifully said, John. You know, sometimes I stumble upon some good stuff. Also, I think I'm running out of steam here. I know. I think that we did a good job of really walking people through the entire application cycle and the myths along the way. So I think that this is a pretty good place for us to to sort of stop this week. Um, I'm excited for what we have coming out soon. Uh, we are, I think we're on track for a really good uh, next few episodes. Yep. And I love this time of year. This is a time of year when all of you start checking in the little details you want to include <laughs> on your application and saying, what should I be thinking of next? I just get so excited about all the potential. Yeah, there's so much hard work that's being done here. Because often at this point in the cycle is when students who are like, I got a, an acceptance from my top choice school. I just want to let you know you did so much work for me. You did this, 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 and this. And I stop them and I say, I, I want to thank you for what you're saying. But you did this hard this work. This is all you. You did all of this. I just gave you more information and data to work with than what you had before because that's my job. You did your job and you need to be proud of the work that you've done. And 
That's what I, I most excites me is just the incredible work that our students and our applicants do is just breathtaking. And sure, there are students that don't go as far as we'd like them to, but then there are just so many students that just fly way beyond our expectations. And both, all of those students are fun to work with, but it's inspiring to see the ones that take pieces of information that you give them and synthesize it into their approach and just fly away. Y'all, we have great jobs. We do. I love what we do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for coming to this week's podcast. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. The Penn State Pre-Health Podcast is a production of the Pre-Health Advising Office in the Eberly College of Science at Penn State University. It is produced, edited, and promoted by the Pre-Health Advising Team. The views, opinions, and advice shared during this podcast are that of the hosts and any guests only, and do not necessarily reflect the best advice for every student at every institution for every health profession. This is a nonprofit podcast made for the purpose of better serving pre-health students across the university system.